0: I walked down the aisle of the court. My boots were clicking on the hard floor, and my palms were sweating. Every eye in the court was on me. I knew they were asking themselves, is she old enough to be a doctor? How can she be an expert? Can I trust what she says? What does she know that that white-haired local male doctor doesn't know? To my right, I saw the attorney I had worked with to understand the case. Raised above it all, the judge was looking down at me from his high position. To my left, for the first time ever, I saw the defendant who the system believed had severely injured the child in my case. They stared at me, then glanced down. The attorney stared hard at me and then started whispering fiercely, clearly ready to fight. I raised my hand and I promised to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth.
1: This is Ian Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana.
2: Lens of Truth.
3: Welcome back. Sarah, we are finally at the end of our legal series. It has been a long series for sure, but there's so little information out there for physicians about where the legal world intersects with our own world. And this last episode is about expert witnesses. Remember in Legal 101, Deputy District Attorney Chris Orr mentioned that the case is presented to either a judge or jury with a series of facts and fact witnesses who are not allowed to give their opinion about the case. The only person who can tie this all together is an expert witness.
0: So first off, we should define what is an expert witness? A medical expert witness is a physician, nurse, or other licensed practitioner whose skill and experience
3: qualify them to testify in a particular medical area. ASEP maintains a guideline called Expert Witness Guidelines for the Specialty of Emergency Medicine. They say an EM expert should be licensed, board-certified, and practiced EM in the preceding three years before the case. ASEP says expert witnesses should have current experiences be truthful, and reflect the state of medical knowledge at the time of the case. They ask experts to review objectively and basically stick to the truth.
0: There are many types of medical experts out there. I testify as an expert in pediatric emergency medicine and child abuse. Depending on the situation in the court, they focus on different
3: areas of my own experience. At UC Davis, we have other medical expert witnesses as well. Dr. John Rose is a medical expert witness and guest co-host of this legal series.
0: He and I interviewed Dr. Jim Holmes and Dr. David Barnes. Both are professors of emergency medicine at UC Davis and expert witnesses in emergency medicine.
1: Let me ask you first, David, uh, how did you get to be an expert witness? Did you put your name out there and do something or how did you find it happen for you?
4: I did not put my name out there. I wasn't looking for this gig. I was referred to one of the local defense attorney firms by a colleague here at UC Davis. He thought that I would enjoy it. He thought that I might be good at it. After all these years, I don't know if he's right or not, but he suggested my name as someone who might be interested in reviewing a case. And that was probably 10 years ago. And I've uh, enjoyed doing the work ever since. Jim,
1: how did you get involved and how did the cases come to you?
2: I was contacted out of the blue one day just by a lawyer who had found an article that I'd published on patients with head trauma. And the lawyer just contacted me and says, hey, I'm representing this physician and like to get your impression of this case. And that started it. And like David, I didn't really have any intent to do this but once I did one case, you know, it was reasonable to do. And one case led to another case, it led to another case. And I think my name traveled word of mouth through lawyers. And that's how I ended up with more cases. I know that there are some physicians out there that advertise, but I've never advertised to do this work.
1: There are plaintiffs and there are defendants, and I'm sure you're both contacted by both sides. Jim, can you talk about being contacted by defense or versus plaintiffs and how that kind of? happens? Is it any different than it was, you know, from one side versus the other?
2: I don't think it's really any different when they contact you. It's different what they want you to say, though. And I've probably done pretty close to 50-50 cases now for defense and plaintiff. And I think if you're going to do work like this, you need to do cases on both sides. Otherwise, it seems like you're just working for one side and you'll only say one side. So, I've done both, and the process is pretty similar, whether it's a defense or a plaintiff. I mean, they they send you the case, and you review the case, and then you talk with them.
4: My experience is a little bit more unbalanced. I've overwhelmingly uh, worked with defense attorneys and for defendants. I have reviewed cases for plaintiffs in the past, and the process is pretty much the same. You're contacted, and if you're experienced, I think it's good to get that out front. You know, what are they looking for? Which side are they for? Is this a defense case, a plaintiff's case? That way you kind of know what the scope is going into to your review.
0: I know for myself as an expert in child abuse, I have to submit my CV. It becomes part of the record. Both sides ask me a series of questions and then the judge qualifies me as an expert. How does it work for you guys as an expert in emergency medicine with medical negligence cases?
4: I think by just being an emergency physician, a board-certified practicing emergency physician, that, that's really the key, right? You know, you have to have the training, but you also have to have the experience. And at least in California, you have to have had practice within the last five years in an emergency department. You can't be working, say, in a specialty clinic not related to emergency medicine and be an expert witness for an emergency medicine case or a case that involved an allegation of malpractice in the emergency department. You also can't be a specialist who just happens to see patients in the emergency department and qualify as an emergency medicine medical expert.
2: Yeah, qualifications is a broad term that encompasses a lot of things depending upon what state you're in, as David points out. So the first trial I actually ever testified at, it was an emergency medicine physician who was being sued, but the expert witnesses were a neurologist and a neurosurgeon. There was no emergency medicine expert witness. My guess is because they couldn't find one. So, what the expert definition is in Oregon is a different definition than it is in California.
1: And that was outside of California. That
2: was was in Oregon, correct.
1: Some states have basically statutes, which California is one that the primary expert, the first one to give testimony of whether whatever is being addressed, um, has to be qualified under that portion of the statute for being an emergency physician, which I think we recall was somewhere a percentage of time within five years or so to make it that you just can't be sitting in an office somewhere. The other witnesses behind that person can be specialists and other states have similar things, um, but you may be in a state that doesn't have that. And you may have a cardiologist being the first person who's giving the opinion, which we all know in our specialty could be quite complicated and make it a little more challenging.
4: And I would add to that, John, that it depends on whether that expert is testifying as to the standard of care or to causation. It's perfectly acceptable. And I know the law has changed recently in the state of California that causation experts can come from other specialties besides emergency medicine. But really for standard of care in the emergency department in the state of California, you really need to have a practicing emergency physician who is familiar with and practices the standard of care
1: we've talked a lot about just the complexity of both emotional complexity for the physicians who are involved and and as the attorney dealing with some of those things or the patient events that are happening. And and I think in my own experience, there's parts of this that I enjoy because I enjoy understanding the process, but realizing when I review these cases that these were very hard for the physicians who are involved.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely correct, John, that, that there's definitely some emotion on the other side. And I look at these cases, and unlike Dave, Dave mentioned that he wants to know kind of what side i I in general just want to look at the case without knowing anything on the outside, and I think that at least allows me to give the most unbiased view most of the time i I'm almost always know if it's a plaintiff or defense case, but sometimes i've been sent things, and I didn't know what side they were on and th- I think that's the best now saying that and these things can go on forever, they can go on for multiple years, and you're sitting there reviewing the case and say you know i'd have done the exact same thing this emergency medicine physician did. And now they're being sued. So it does, you know, gets to my heart a little bit there when I put myself in their position, but I, I try not to do that. I, I try not to get any emotion in my review of the case.
4: I also like to look at every case with the lens of truth. I, I really try not to be biased by whether it's a plaintiff attorney or a defense attorney that's contacting me. My mission is to to really find, okay, no matter what side, what really happened? And did this person meet the standard, you know, regardless of, of which side they're on? But I would also say that I think it's difficult or almost impossible to not have some sort of an emotional response to the case, because I think at least when I review a case, I can see myself in that person's shoes, trying to imagine what, what it was that they were going through. And, and certainly once there are two or three, or I have a, a case that I'm uh, recently involved with that's now six years into litigation. What that physician and, and what the family you know everyone involved must be going through and the emotional toll it takes to really drag that out for so many years.
1: yeah, it is hard. I've also my own experience found that to your point, Jim, that when I get cases, attorneys appreciate if I give them an honest review because it actually saves them time and energy. They may see it as a certain picture, and then I give them this is probably how you should really be looking at it. Many times, even plaintiff attorneys, they're very appreciative, like okay, that makes sense. I found that attorneys sometimes appreciate that kind of candor.
4: When I work with a new attorney or a new firm, I will often lead with that, that I may not give you the response that you are expecting. I, I may tell you something that you may not want to hear. Uh, and, and I agree. I think they're very appreciative of that. And it probably earns the expert witness more credibility to look at the case through that lens than it does to, to just try and match whatever the expectations of the attorney are.
1: So you get a case. It's sent to you. Um, In some kind of format, Um, how do you, Jim? How do you begin looking at the case? What do you do? Do you go like an Angus Christie book and go right to the back and get the? Okay, I got the, I got the finish. All right, and then you go now go read the beginning of the book, or do you do you actually start from the beginning?
2: First, I spend an hour trying to sort through the PDFs to find out where the (laughs) emergency department section is because you get this big document now that has lots of pages, and I can spend a lot of time just finding the ED events. Now, I've been sent cases where they've just sent me the emergency department portion, and that is so much easier because you just read through the emergency department portion and you and then you talk to the the lawyer and say, here's exactly what happened. Here's what the standard of care is. Here's what I think. And that's much easier than you get this big document and you have to sort through it. But I always start with the emergency department. I never go to, to find the end and then review what happened. I always want to review what happened in the emergency department, make the determination what the standard of care is. Did they meet the standard of care? then figure out what the true event was.
4: The vast majority of the cases that I review come to me electronically. They're either on a thumb drive or they're sent through some secure cloud. And you access this just absolutely huge document, sometimes thousands of pages, that is sometimes searchable and sometimes not. So really drilling down to the pertinent records for our purposes as emergency medicine expert witnesses, it can be really time-consuming and very challenging. Paper records, on the other hand, Whereas they're a little bit more antiquated and, and a, a lot less common, can sometimes be easier, even though they may be clunkier. And I would agree with Jim: the the attorneys in cases that are further down the discovery road, where they've already gone through the records, they've already even had some experts opine, and they know exactly which records that you need to review. Whereas if you're very early in the case, very early in discovery, they may just dump every record that's available to you and say. What do you think? And those are really time consuming and a lot more challenging.
0: So how do you guys approach this? Do you review the case and then write a prelim review? Do you do a full review right off the bat? Do you get on the phone and talk to them? What are the, kind of the next steps?
1: I, I'm, I'm <laughs> So, so Julian, if, if the audience can't see this, but all three of us are shaking our heads emphatically no. If they can see us on video right now, our heads are moving so strong to say no. Absolutely not. I don't
4: take any notes. I don't mark up any records. This actually does vary by jurisdiction, whether you're in a federal court or a state court. But I assume, and and I know these are the, the evidence rules for the state of California, anything that you write, any type of communication, whether it's an email or a text, or you mark up a document, all of that is admissible and discoverable by the attorneys. And so if you're writing something that just happens to be a little scratch, you know, on, as a note on the side of a paper that actually is discoverable. And you can guarantee that opposing counsel is going to drill you about it.
2: I had a lawyer, a plaintiff lawyer once asked for all the electronic communication I had with the uh, defense lawyer. So I, I don't write anything down. I try to review the case and then I let it go for a few days. And then I try to set up my call to talk to him and I review the case again before I have the actual call with them but I don't write anything down.
1: We've all learned you, you don't say anything until you're asked to say something and then they'll help you say it. Though I did learn that in federal court, you have to write it all yourself. In California, the attorneys can draft a preliminary draft of documents for you that you then can go edit. But in, uh, in federal court, you have to write it all
2: by yourself. I think most states allow the lawyers to draft your statement. It's very helpful.
4: In federal court, though, the expert witness must compose their written report.
3: The standard of care is generally defined as that reasonable and ordinary care skill and diligence as physicians and surgeons in good standing in the same neighborhood, the same general line of practice, ordinarily have been exercising in like cases.
0: The expert in cases of medical negligence is asked to establish that standard of care in this case. Then they provide an opinion regarding any deviation from that standard of care. Lastly, if there was deviation, the expert may give an opinion if the deviation from standard of care caused the patient's alleged injury. This is where it gets even trickier.
1: So you review the case, you look at the issues, and and obviously, by the time it gets to you as an expert, much of the four components are already there. There was already a duty that attorneys brought, and there's some kind of damage because it got to the point where they had to hire experts. Do you guys are really focusing on standard of care or are you looking at causation or how do you approach it?
2: I really look at things initially from standard of care. I really don't look at things about causation initially. I just look at this is what was done. This is the standard of care. Did it meet or did it not meet the standard of care? I'll then start to think about what the causation is. But I'll be honest with you a lot of times, as David mentioned earlier, you need a different expert witness to say if what was not identified or not treated actually caused the injury that that the patient now has. And I've said several times, this is below the standard of care, but I don't know if what was not done resulted in what now the injury is to the patient. You need the expert to say if that's happened. I've also said it didn't matter if you gave the antibiotics in 30 minutes, two hours, four hours this same outcome would have happened. So I've done the causation as well, but I I look at it first always from the standard of care.
4: I do the same. And, and, And most of the time, clients that have hired me as an expert witness have focused on and specifically asked me to review through the lens of standard of care. I think causation comes up in a minority of cases, at least the ones that I've reviewed. I've probably reviewed 70 or 80 cases over the last few years. But it does come up every now and then. And and as Jim suggested, it might be unique to emergency medicine or, or other general practices of medicine that really causation expertise requires a separate witness in most cases.
1: So you've kind of reviewed the case and you've rendered an opinion and they've decided that that's an opinion that they like you to render and they're going to keep you on for the case. And they they give your name to the court because so, the court has to basically certify that you are the, the expert. Then eventually, usually someone wants to talk to you on the record. You want to have a deposition. It's usually opposing counsel that is uh, deposing because they want to know what you're going to say. Can you talk about your early experiences and as you've done more, what you learned?
4: I will start by saying it is an absolutely terrifying experience. I think opposing counsel who is skilled at the art of deposition, and it really is an art. I had an appreciation for lawyers before I was deposed my first time, but afterwards, I had a, an even better appreciation for what they do. Their knowledge of the material is is impressive the way that they try to get at your testimony and get you to admit things like you said that you ordinarily wouldn't admit if you were given a little bit more time or you were asked a different way. It's really sneaky, but it's it's very artful It's and it's why they're paid the big bucks. In retrospect, I think I knew the material very well going into my first deposition. What I probably wasn't prepared for really was the attacks that would come at me about even my integrity. I remember um, one of the very first times I, w- I was to post as an expert, the attorneys wanted to know exactly how many pages I had reviewed and how quickly I can read a page of medical records. And they went through and they tried to calculate up all of the pages that I had testified that I had reviewed divided by the number of minutes it takes me to review a page. And then they tried to impeach me by saying that I couldn't possibly read that fast. They really try to get at the experts and impeach their testimony, impeach their credibility any way they can. And I was not prepared for that.
0: Oh, man, I totally agree. It can be soul-sucking to be cross-examined. One time, the defense attorney accused the surgeon of lacerating an organ and the NICU nurses of causing all of the rib fractures in the baby that I was talking about. I clearly disputed that. And then they turned on me and said, it is in your best interest to defend the hospital. And I was like, really? No, it's not in my best interest to defend the hospital. It is in my best interest to tell the truth.
2: I agree. It's uncomfortable. I certainly get more nervous, I guess you'd say, doing a deposition than I do speaking in front of a thousand people or taking care of a septic shock patient in the resuscitation room. Mostly because, as has been pointed out, is they are trying to to do something to discredit your testimony so that you will no longer be the expert witness that's their job and I, I I do look at it kind of as you mentioned, Julia. I look at it as i'm just telling you what the truth is here in the medical records, and that's all I can tell you. I can tell you what the standard of care is, and I can tell you you know what was done here and if it met the standard of care, and this is just the truth and so I try to lean back on the fact that. I do have the facts. I mean, I've seen some crazy testimony over the years. That has to be really uncomfortable when you're saying things that sound fairly crazy.
4: I would add that as I had more experience with a deposition testimony and even trial testimony, that what has given me more confidence and kept me sane is to remember that I'm not the one on trial. And even though it seems like it sometimes as the opposing counsel is kind of coming at me, I step back and and try to find my happy place that I'm I'm the arbiter of truth. I'm telling you how I see things as an expert, as a practicing emergency physician in my multiple years of experience. I'm not the one on trial and really trying to get at the truth and and teach the jury. If, If you happen to be testifying at trial, teaching the jury about the art of the practice and the truth, I find that keeps me a little bit more sane in front of counsel
1: and in front of a jury. I think you bring up a good point because many of our listeners are, you know, have probably had cases happen and, and have been deposed about their own care, which Tom Doyle was very eloquent in speaking about how he supports you know, physicians to help them kind of normalize a little bit of this, that there's really no specialty nowadays that is spared from the malpractice, no matter what you do. And that, you know, for the people who are being deposed about their actual care, it's a, you know, obviously a heart wrenching event to have happen, but it's even difficult for the experts too, even when you're trying to, like you say, we believe we're speaking the truth. So I, I have learned in the legal system, the truth is one thing, it kind of counts, but it's really about the evidence. It's what can be put in to the record and it's really the record that's the event more than what is the truth. And I, the sooner that I realized that, the easier it was to kind of understand what they were trying to get at.
4: Wasn't it Tom Cruise in A Few
1: Good Men who said, it's not about the evidence, it's about what I can prove? It is a a complicated game. When you're doing these, you read other depositions. You get a case and they, the case has been down a few years. They've deposed pretty much everybody. So not only do you get the chart from the medical record, but you get a bunch of depositions that you have to sort through and which in my experience can be the roughest part because you're trying to collate some information from some date and what really happened.
2: I have been shocked at times with what other experts will say is the standard of care. Let's just put it at that. And I say shocked, but disappointed as well. Just things that clearly would not be the case, but you can find somebody out there that will say that's the standard of care. Um, It's unfortunate, but it definitely does happen. And I get a little disillusioned when I read it. Sometimes I get mad. American College of Emergency Physicians does have a process that you can refer people that give expert witness that's clearly not right. I've never referred anyone to that, but I came very close here not too long ago on just an absolute egregious case. I was on the defense side, obviously. Ultimately, the physician was released from the case, but still there was an expert witness that just said some outlandish information.
3: I can imagine it is super challenging to be in the line of fire, so to speak.
0: Yeah, Sarah, I completely agree. You know, my area of expert witness testimony is different than David, but I also try to focus on a few key phrases. I tell myself, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And I remind myself, while it may feel like I'm on the hot seat, really, I'm not.
3: Yeah, that's great. It really is in everyone's best interest if this testimony is evidence-based, experience-based, and unbiased.
0: You know, Sarah, when I work in the emergency department, every decision that I make, I try to ask myself what's best for the patients in my department. So every choice, every question, every answer, everything is about my patients. But in court, especially when the opposing side is cross-examining, I feel like it becomes more about me instead of the patient. So am I qualified? Am I biased? Did I make mistakes? Did I document every moment correctly? This is the part that is soul-sucking as a physician who went into medicine to help patients and volunteered to be an expert witness to stand up for the truth. But I remind myself it is their job. It is part of the system. And I also give space after the opposing side asks questions for someone Anyone to object. (laughs) (laughs) How has being an expert witness changed you as a clinician and maybe even as a person?
4: I think it makes me a much better emergency physician. I don't want to say that I'm extra guarded when I take care of patients, but I'm extra mindful of the pitfalls that I have seen so many other doctors fall into, whether it's sepsis care or pediatrics care or trauma care seeing what minds are out there waiting to step on through the lens of being an expert witness has really helped me focus my attention when I'm practicing in the ED to be that much more careful and, and to really improve my documentation when I, I'm taking care of high-risk patients. So I, I think it's, it, it's really helped me be a better doctor.
2: I would agree. And I don't think it's necessarily has to be expert witness work, but quality improvement work as well. I think that does the same thing. I, I think they're hand in hand. They both change how you look at things and probably change how you care as well as how you document, right? Like a 25-year-old that presents altered with a fever. Man, I'm giving antibiotics immediately for that. And it's never meningitis. But I will say, I'm not going to wait 12 hours for, you know, things to happen and all of a sudden say, well, you know, now they're obtunded. I probably should give the antibiotics. And it's purely from seeing cases like, you know, that happening where there's delays and you're like, how did that happen?
1: We had a little discussion with uh, Tom Doyle, the malpractice attorney, about some of these issues, especially as they relate to electronic medical records. Um, one of the challenge being that, you know, there's a lot of pressure on emergency docs, especially when in the community, about, you know, throughput and getting maximum billing and trying to do as much as you can and get in and get out. Not a lot of times for them to write or dictate narratives in it because they really have to turn over a lot, um, which he says the best part for him is if he has an actual narrative that, that is put in the chart about the whole encounter. The risk that would happen is that something gets checked that's part of a, an auto import or part of a template that they've set up because they're setting up things for speed and for billing. But in their template, they didn't realize there's a pitfall put in there. And so they have someone who has a, a missed fracture. It's not the case that you thought was super sick and blah, that may be the one. It'll be some small case that you don't remember. And they came back. It was a misfracture you had. And you commented on this, their nose, rumen in their ears. And the attorney will ask you, did you look in their ears? And you will go, well, no, it's their ankle. Then why did you mark that you looked in their ears? And they go, well, that's a mistake. Well, what else are your charts a mistake? Because you just made that mistake. And the other thing he was commenting on was the, we write our initial note and then we write the very end, but he can't tell like what was the conversations that were in the middle. Can you guys speak to that a little bit in,
2: in your own practice with electronic charting now with legal eye in it? Well, I, I will say that the charting is the problem on a large percentage of the charts that I see. You know, it, it's cases like someone will have an epidural abscess and they'll come in, the chief complaint will be back pain, but there's no documentation on the back exam or a neuro exam. And you're just like, you know, it's hard to defend this case when, when it's not documented. So you have to document, especially documented around what the chief complaint is. I do a lecture out in the community and CME courses on on medical malpractice. And and the most important thing, I think, is is your medical decision-making. This is what I thought. This is why I thought it. This is the clinical decision rules I use to decide not to do X, Y, and Z. I told the patient to come back for X, Y, and Z, right? And so I think that's the most important, assuming that you've adequately documented your exam and history to begin with. And it's not a dot phrase, too. That is correct. Yes.
1: Because <laughs> we, we've all seen it, medical decision it too is a dot phrase. Correct.
4: Yeah, I, I agree 100% with Jim. I've, I've found that in the cases I've reviewed, the, the medical documentation that is thorough, especially in the medical decision-making section, overwhelmingly will favor my opinion towards if, if I'm doing a defense case. It really helps me get into the mind of the physician and helps me understand that they were thorough that they were competent that they evaluated for these high risk conditions associated with the chief complaint and conversely the cases that have completely absent medical decision making where you can tell that someone was rushed or that they just didn't care or that they forgot to add a narrative those are the ones where you're just left scratching your head and like jim said like how how can you defend that oftentimes that'll come down to what attorneys call usual and customary practice where an overwhelming or disproportionate amount of the testimony will be spent uh, with the physician really kind of clamoring back their own credibility. Like, well, no, 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 this is what I usually do. And the opposing counsel saying, well, yeah, but how do we know that? You know, my documentation takes me a little bit longer, but I am more thorough and I'm more confident that what I've put down is going to be defensible.
0: You can sleep at night.
1: I sleep very well at night (laughs) without medication. Thank you very
0: much. (laughs)
1: But I think, you know, for many docs out there who are have had this happen to them, it's an immensely challenging part of their career and it it impedes both their family lives and social lives and such. And they're professional. And, uh, you know, we know that this is very, very hard,
2: but it is kind of the nature of what we do.
0: Anything else you think that we should know?
2: I just give a point to the audience to please document your charts and your medical decision making as as good as possible. And the second point to the audience, I would just say, be kind to the patient. There's plenty of data out there that shows that patients that like their providers sue much less than patients that have bad experience with their providers. So be kind to the patients. A little bit different, I should say, in the emergency department as opposed to the clinic because we have just a small snapshot of time with the patient, but be kind.
4: I would echo that. I think every, every patient wants both a kind physician as well as a competent physician. If you have to choose between those two things, competence will always outweigh kindness. But to do both, I think, is in everyone's best interest and certainly what I strive to every shift. In terms of the expert witness piece of this discussion, for those interested in in becoming expert witnesses, what are the qualities that um, a firm would be looking at or value in an expert witness? And I think being honest, being humble, looking at things again through the lens of truth, really trying to find out what you actually feel was the standard of care, whether it was met or, or was it not, and uh, not trying to play to any one side in particular, being responsive, returning phone calls and, and returning emails in a timely fashion. I, I think uh, council very much appreciates that and it earns their respect and will probably keep them coming back to you in the future.
1: check.
3: A medical expert witness is a physician, nurse, or other licensed practitioner whose skill and experience qualify them to testify in a particular medical area. ASEP says an emergency medicine expert should be licensed, board-certified, and practiced EM in the preceding three years before the case. Expert witnesses should have current experience, be truthful, and reflect the state of medical knowledge at the time of the case. In medical liability cases, the first question for experts is, does this meet standard of care? The next question is, did the deviation from standard of care cause the patient's alleged injury? To protect yourself in medical negligence cases, our medical experts recommend being purposeful with documentation and doing the best we can to provide competent and kind care.
0: The ASAP Expert Witness Guideline for the Specialty of Emergency Medicine is a great place to start if you are contemplating the important and ethical role of the
3: expert witness. Ask yourself, do I have the interest and ability to be an expert witness? The world needs ethical physicians that can apply experience and evidence to these cases. Follow us at Pulse Podcast and share this episode with a friend. Thank you to our department for providing internal quality review for us to learn from. And
0: thank you to OM Audio Productions for quality recordings.
3: And thank you to our audience for supporting us in this journey. See you next time.